We're uh, taking our, a break from our series in the book of Matthew to do what we've done periodically here, and that's to dig a little bit deeper into one of the practices of Jesus' life that seemed to provide him with a connection with his Father and an ability to live out his life in a way that was truly transformational and impacted the lives of others. And uh, as we've gone through this, we've looked at several different things. We looked first at that whole practice of prayer. We've seen that as foundational for Jesus' life. If you read through the Gospels, you see how often Jesus has said he'd go out to a lonely place to pray, or he spent the whole night in prayer before choosing those that were going to be his closest associates. So we saw prayer as significant, and what does that look like in our life? And that was the first practice we started with. And then we looked at the practice of community, recognizing that Jesus didn't just come here and solve all the problems without any human involvement in that process, but he chose folks to be part of his ministry and then equip them to go out and to share that gospel, but not to do it alone, but do it, do it as, a, as a team and the importance of community together that we need one another to be a spur to love and to good deeds that on our own we tend just to kind of languish and we need the hope and encouragement of our brothers and sisters. And then we looked at the whole process of silence and solitude, of, of getting away and in the midst of the busyness and the, just the constant press of our culture to disconnect for a moment and just to think about stuff that truly is significant and important and we looked at that and then this will be the fourth practice we look at is is meditating and studying the scriptures um, again we don't have a specific instance where we see other than Jesus opening the scroll of Isaiah in Luke and saying this is kind of my mission but we can tell his life was just permeated with us understanding and a meditation on scripture we saw that when he was in the desert being tempted he responded it is written it is it written, it is written. And all of those were from Deuteronomy 6 to 8. And it's just like Jesus had been probably pouring over that section of God's word. And in facing the evil one, he was able to respond with truth from God's word that helped him to face those temptations. So we recognize that, and we looked at last week, that 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuke, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the person of God will be fully complete, equipped for every good work. And we saw that the point of our studying and meditating on Scripture isn't so that we get big theological eggheads, but so that we become really big lovers of other people. Lovers of God and, and lovers of other people. That God's word is supposed to transform us by the renewing of our mind to move us into doing what is God's pleasing and perfect will. The goal of scripture study is never just to sit and sour and soak in our own stuff, but it's to love those around us. And so most of us are committed to that. We did a survey and I'm just thrilled with how many folks actually daily are reading their scriptures or at least lying to us about reading their scriptures daily. <laughs> Anyhow, it made me feel good. But just the reality is many of you have set off on a, you know, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year path. And you're doing great for about 69 chapters, you know. There's a lot of drama, there's a lot of excitement, you know. You're engaged, it's, some of it's kind of strange, but it's like, it's pretty thrilling still. And then you hit, after 69 chapters, you hit Exodus 20, and then, bam, you just hit a wall. You come to the Ten Commandments, like, okay, I understand that. And then you realize, wow, there's a whole bunch of commandments after that. 
and I'm in Exodus, and then I'm in Leviticus, and there's all this stuff about sacrifices, and, and I just really don't relate to this, and then you get into numbers, and there's a lot of more sacrifices, and all this stuff, that doesn't, and it's like the wheels just fall off on some times, and you just kind of move forward from there and say, that was a, a nice experience. And if you get into it, you realize, man, there's a lot of stuff that's kind of hard to understand for me. You know, the death penalty for kids cursing their parents. Or regulations. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. I'm not even going to touch that one. Or regulations for when a man sells his daughter into slavery. Or a whole lot of regulations about bad-tempered oxes that seem to be goring other people. Or, you know, we talked about this in Sunday school, you know, three times God says, don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And you hit those things and you're just like, wow, this honestly seems pretty disconnected from where I live. I don't have an ox. I don't own a farm. You know, I've never been tempted to sell any of my children into slavery. Tempted to, yeah, do other stuff, but not that was not one of my temptations. And so, how do I process this section of Scripture called law? And that's what I want to look at this morning. How do we get to that place with the psalmist in Psalm 1 where he says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. And then that famous passage in Joshua 1.8, right? Take this law and you meditate on it day and night and then you'll be prosperous and successful in everything that you do. Or some have read Psalm 119, the longest psalm, and in that psalm the psalmist just says, oh, how I delight in your law! And we hear that and we're like, you know, I've never gotten that excited about law, to be honest. And I know there's a whole lot of laws and lawyers, God love them, but man, I, that just wouldn't be a path that I would go to, down to, to, to study law and, and to be thrilled with it. And it's like, what? how do I get there, Lord? How do I get beyond kind of hitting this wall and I hit the Ten Commandments and then depending on how you count them, there's either 611 or 613 Old Testament laws that they're supposed to follow. I prefer 611 because that's the numerical value of the Hebrew word Torah. And I think the biblical writers were brilliant and they knew how to put these things together. But the reality is there's a whole lot of laws in there. And I've never been that excited about law. I've never woken up in the morning and said, Oh, I just can't wait to read through the statutory regulations of my HOA. That is just, you know, that's just, just thrilling. No, I'm not there. And especially in our day and age, you get online and you hear all these ridiculing memes about a lot of these Old Testament laws that paint God not only as kind of outdated, but actually even immoral and problematic. Yet for Jews, the law was kind of the center of life, the center of Torah. And that word Torah literally means instruction. And we talked a little bit about this when we were in Genesis, but the reality of how God has set this up 
in a lot of ancient literature, you know, we tend to save the best for last at the conclusion of a story or an account. That's where we put the most important stuff. But in a lot of biblical literature, there's a thing called chiasm, which just is chiasm X. So the, the main point is often in the middle. That's where the focus is to be. And there's a Hebrew scholar named Carmen Imes that looks at Numbers 33 and says, you know, there's 42 stops on the way from Egypt to Canaan. But there's only 12 of those that are really detailed in the Torah. And it's amazing that you have six before Israel gets to Sinai in Exodus 12 through 18. And then after they leave Sinai, there's six in Numbers 11 through 32. If you see the, the word desert, desert or wilderness is mentioned seven times before Sinai. And amazingly, seven times after Sinai. There's manna and quail once before Sinai, once after Sinai. There's two requests for water, once the two were before, and two after. There is protection from a foreign king once before Sinai, and once after. There's a fight with the Amalekites once before Sinai, and once after. And she says this is all sorts of literary devices that are getting the reader to focus on the importance of Sinai. This is what it's about. It's about the law. So how do we get to a place with many Jews where we really do delight in the law? Or can say, oh, how I love your law. Let me give you some thoughts this morning that help me get there and hopefully will move you closer to a delight in the law or at least enable you to move this through this section of reading through your Bible in a year with a little bit more enthusiasm and joy. So the first thing that I look at is when I'm looking at this section is to consider the context. The law and the obedience to the law was not the basis of the Israelites' relationship with God. It wasn't what was the thing that saved them, right? They'd already been saved. They'd already been rescued out of Egypt by the gracious hand of God. They were already called to be his people. They had already trusted to put the blood over the doorposts and the Passover celebration of this is a picture to, of Christ to come, but they'd already done that. They were already God's people. And then the law comes to them. They were already rescued from their slavery. In Exodus 19, 4 through 6, we looked at that, that God calls his people his segula, his treasured possession. It's like, this is who you are, and this is before the law. So the law comes basically and says, you are my treasured possession. Now, this is how I want you to interact with one another and interact with me so that this relationship that I've already established because of my grace and my love and pulling you out of slavery you can experience joy and closeness in my relationship with you there. So to me, the Jews were not thinking, okay, we've got to obey all these things to be acceptable to God. We've got to obey these things to be close with God. And we see the whole point of the law and the tabernacle is God's presence coming down. He's going to be with his people. He's present with his people in the tabernacle. You have all these regulations of how you build the tabernacle and all that kind of stuff. And so many Old Testament scholars will say, you look at the tabernacle and there's all these pictures of Eden. 
There's cherubim in it. There's, you know, plants and pomegranates. There's pictures of the garden. And so they think the point is God is trying to say this. I want to be with my people again, like it was back in Eden when I walked with closeness with Adam and Eve in the garden. Now I want to do that again with you. And these are the laws, the principles of how you interact with one another to experience the joy of my presence with you. So I don't think when a Jew looked at a law, they looked at a law like I look at a law. They looked at a law saying, okay, this is something that will enable closeness and intimacy with God. And that's what I want. What's David's heart, his desires? I want to be in your house. I want to be close to you and to recognize that that happens when we obey God's law and when we follow him. It's not the basis of our relationship, but it's the basis of our experiencing closeness and intimacy with God. Let's see. 33 plus years ago, um, I stood before a minister and uh, I made some vows. And I said, I do. And she said, I do. At that point in time, we were married. Right? Now, we could say, okay, I'm married, whatever. I can do whatever. I'm married to this person now. And that, in one sense, is true. But if I'm going to experience joy and intimacy in that relationship, there are certain ways of behaving that I probably needed to both change and then begin to engage in as a married person at that point in time. And I think there's a lot of similarity with the law. God is saying, in essence, the Hebrews say, I do. They say, I'm all about this. We want to follow you. They didn't do it very well, but that was kind of their I do saying. God says, I want to be close to you, and this is how we're going to do it. This is the law that's going to maintain this relationship of closeness. This isn't going to allow me to dwell with you and for you to enjoy our presence together. In Psalm 119, this is, sounds very almost marriage-like. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. Sounds pretty romantic, doesn't it? Yeah, it's like we'd say that about, it's like this is why. Because they see that law as a way of establishing intimacy and closeness in their relationship with God. And I don't think you would say, oh, my soul is consumed with longing of these 611 laws that if I don't obey them, then I'm going to be set outside and away from God's. No, it's this, this is what brings me experience of God that's rich and real. And so God is providing this law to enable his presence to dwell with his people, for them to be with him and for him to be with them. So again, consider the context when you look at the law. It's not like our law. Another thing is our laws tend to be statutory laws where they're all written down and the basis of the law is what is written on that paper and stored somewhere. In the ancient Near East, most laws were more common law. That there was an ideal principle out there that most people in the culture held to. And then as we see so many of these laws come up in the Torah here, they're more case law. They're application. You know, when this happens, this is what you do. So the idea is not, we've got laws for everything. If you read the Torah, and that's why there were so many Jewish writings about how you got to do everything. This is not exhaustive. This is illustrative of these are how you apply some of these principles as you go through life. So to recognize that in that culture, these laws were just kind of, this is assumed. And there are some laws that this is what you need to do. The Ten Commandments, to me, are the basis of that. And then you get to so many other laws, to me, that are an application of those Ten Commandments to life. Okay, 
what do I do if my ox gores somebody? Well, all right, it's the first time he's done it, then there's probably a penalty you need to pay. But if your ox continues to gore somebody and you don't do anything about it, then there's big penalty to pay. So that idea of personal responsibility, I'm responsible for what I'm doing and how that impacts other people is the principle behind the law there. Am I loving my neighbors around me in that way? If I'm building a roof, I need to build a railing around the roof. It's like, oh, what? Why is God getting into building regulation? Why? Because people hung out on their roofs. It was a hot culture. That's where they lived. And so the idea was that you want to protect those people that are on your premises so that nobody gets hurt. So that idea, there's a principle behind the specific application of that principle. And that's you got to care for other people and make sure that you ensure for their safety. And so our building codes and all of that is, in essence, what? We care about other people so we don't want them to get hurt or injured. So consider the context where these laws are. The second point that I want to make as we look at the law to help us to get through it is to consider the culture. Remember that the Bible as a whole and the law in particular was written for us but not to us and it's not about us. Right? We talked a little bit about this in Sunday school this morning. The ancient Near East was an agrarian society. Right? I don't live in an agrarian society. I like gardening. I used to garden a lot, especially when I lived up north, and you could just plant things, and they'd grow, and they'd produce stuff down here. Oh, man, that thing got to it, or mold got to it, and I haven't had great luck down here. But the reality is most of us, you know, our gardening is going to Walmart or Publix and going to the produce section and picking out a bag of lettuce and bringing it home, right? But this is an agrarian culture. And it's like, so you're reading through this, and some of this stuff sounds pretty irrelevant to us. And it's like, okay, oxes, I just don't have an ox. But then you look, and you're like, in the Code of Hammurabi, there was also laws regulating oxes and how oxes dealt with other people. So you recognize, okay, what's going on here? There's a common cultural background that all of these lands share. And the reality is, these laws made a lot of sense to the people at that time. And so I need to, in essence, put myself in the situation of those people at that time to understand some of these laws. I was just reading this morning and it was talking about not harvesting your field all the way to the edges. Well, I, you know, I don't have a field. You know, I guess I can like maybe not harvest all my basil on the edges of my pots, but you know, I don't know. Is that going to really make God happy? No. Why do they do that? They do that so that the, the widow and the immigrant has food. So don't maximize your profits, but leave some for those that don't have enough because of their particular status being kind of on the outside of society, those who are immigrants and those that are widows and have no other way. So then they can go out into the fields and they can harvest some of that and they will have a sustaining ability to live life. And I think it's brilliant. It's not a handout, but it's a sense of, okay, we're leaving this for you. If you want to go work to get it, that's wonderful. Go do it. And I think about that in light of, okay, that's, how do, but how does that apply to my life? Well, does every dollar I earn, does that go to me? Is that about my stuff? Or do I realize, wow, God's blessed me, and maybe I have a good job, that I have good crops, and then God is saying, okay, that's wonderful. But do you realize who gives the ability to give wealth? Is it your brilliance? Is it your being in that right position at that right time to get that right job? To get? No. 
It's God that gives us those abilities. And when he gives us that, then he gives a responsibility with that for us to take care of the less fortunate. Those that have needs. Those that not won't work, but that can't work. Or don't have the resources to provide for themselves. So to me, there's a principle. Again, there's a principle behind the law, the case law. Don't harvest your field to the corners. Okay, eh, I just skip read right over that. But to me, one of the ways that I can delight in this law is to look, okay, Lord, what is the principle behind these specific case applications of this law? And the principle there is, if God has blessed me, I have a responsibility and I need to have a concern for those that are less fortunate. It's not all about me and my money and all that. It's about how can I help and bless other people in process. So as you're reading through some of these laws, and it's just like, okay, but then my thinking is, Lord, what is the principle behind the application that you have in that culture? Because I'm not living in that culture. I'm living in this culture. But to me, there's a principle usually that will transver- transcend those cultures and enable us then to be thinking through, how do we live this out today? You know, when I study business, the, the bottom line is to maximize shareholder wealth. You know what? That's a really cruel principle. Because if I take that as the absolute bottom line, then I'm going to treat my workers and give them as little as I possibly can because my responsibility is not to my workers, it's to my shareholders. And so you look at this and you say, Lord, there's principles. If I owned a business, this is how I would want to operate my business that maybe wouldn't maximize shareholder wealth, but would maximize the impact of your kingdom as I own a business. And so those are the ways I think we need to be thinking through these laws as we approach Scripture and we get to this section of law. And we talked about in Sunday school, don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And it's like, well, what? There's no, I, I don't even know how to begin. What's the transcendent principle behind that? And I talked at the beginning of the last century, there was a big library discovered in Ugarit, and they found all these texts about religious rituals and manuals about how you know, these cultures would, would practice their religion. And one of the things that would ensure good crops and fertility among their animals would be you would boil a young animal in its mother's milk. So to me, then that makes sense of those strange passages you're looking at and saying, okay, I don't think God is that concerned. And as Jews today, they would say, okay, you don't mix dairy and meat. That's the big thing. So it's a no-no for a good Orthodox Jew to have a cheeseburger because there's dairy and there's meat together. I don't think that's what God is that concerned about. What he's concerned about is, okay, there's a religious practice that's going on in the neighbors around where my people are going to be. And I know my people have a tendency to wander. And I know that I need to put some boundaries around them. So I'm going to say, don't do this because that will prevent pagan worship. So the point and the principle is there, don't worship God like the folks around you that don't really know the true God are worshiping him. That's the principle. And then in what ways in my life am I worshiping things like the people around me? How am I worshiping mammon, maybe, like those people around me. We say, wow, we don't have idols today. You bet we do. They're just not made of metal. And they usually all reside in here, right? Maybe my reputation, it may be my popularity, it may be my achievement, it may be my money, it may be security in the future. All of those things can become idols and I need to ask myself, am I worshiping those things in the same way as those around me are worshiping them? So again, to me, that's remember the culture that you're in. 
as we look at these laws. It's 2,000, 3,000 years ago. So to think that, you know, we can just read that and say, whoop, that's what I'm... It's like, no, that's not what God is saying to do today. But there was a principle that applied in that culture. What is that principle and how does it apply in my culture today? Also to understand, as we look at the Old Testament, that God's law is coming into a culture that's already in existence, right? This is the ancient Near East. If you read about Canaanites and the Assyrians and how they did life and how they did their religion, it was a pretty awful, violent, rough world to live in. And God's word is coming into this. He's not coming to a culture that's not in existence at all. And he's coming into a culture that's already broken, that's already fallen. And God, as he gives his law, he regulates fallen aspects of a culture that are not his original or his best design. Turn to Matthew 19. And this has helped me as I look at some of these seemingly strange laws that often people will say, these are immoral. This is Jesus responding to folks that are questioning him about divorce, starting in verse 3. And a Pharisee came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? There was a big debate in Jewish culture at that point in time, two schools of thought. Hillel was the more liberal school, the rabbi. It's like, you can divorce your wife for anything. She burns the toast, she can be out of there. And then Shammai was the other school that was not for any cause, but only for adultery and for sexual misconduct. So the Pharisees asking him basically, which school do you agree with here? Are you with the liberals or are you with the conservatives? And as usual, Jesus says, neither. Let's go on. As Pharisees came up to test him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? But he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your lives, but from the beginning it was not so. So what is Jesus saying there? There's laws that are regulating a practice, divorce, in the Old Testament that was not God's intention, purpose, or design for marriage. His design for marriage is one man, one woman, for life. That's his design. That's what he wants. But he recognizes, okay, my law is coming into a culture and there will be divorces. They're saying, well, why did Moses command divorce? He's like, Moses did not command divorce. Moses allowed you to divorce. Why? Because of the hardness of your heart. So this helps me when I look at a lot of the Old Testament laws that deal with issues such as slavery and other things. This is a culture in which slavery already existed. And as you look at the law of the Torah, as it looks at slavery, it's very different than the other ancient Near Eastern culture laws about slavery. Now, one comment about slavery from the beginning. You need to recognize that Old Testament slavery was not what American slavery was. 
Old Testament slavery generally was when someone would sell themselves into slavery because of economic hardship or poverty. Or even if a father would sell his daughter, it's into a situation where he could probably not provide for that daughter. He recognized somebody else could, and often there was marriage involved in that process. And if that woman wasn't treated right, there were rights that she had in that situation. If you were a Jew and you had a slave that was a Jew, after seven years that guy was free, or that woman was free. So there was a limited period of time as well. In Deuteronomy 21, the same passage, it talks about slavery. There's also a passage or a a verse in there, I think it's six or seven, that says that you cannot kidnap another person and sell them. So that immediately distinguishes that type of slavery back then from what happened in our country as people kidnapped other people and sold them into slavery. This was a slavery more like an indentured servitude. When people would come over to this country, they'd basically pay for their passage over here for a period of years of indentured servitude towards somebody. And again, is God wanting anybody to be sold into a period of, in essence, forced labor because that's his original design? No, I don't think so. But the reality is slavery was a part of this culture as it was in the New Testament. 30% of supposedly Roman culture at the time of Christ, they were slaves. And we often say, well, why didn't God just come down and say, slavery is wrong, stop it, nobody can hold slaves. Well, I wish he would have in one sense, but I also understand that God knows more than me. And so I think if the early church or these cultures, if that was introduced right away, it would be this stuff would have been totally rejected or Christianity would have been squashed by the Romans because they thought this was an economic thing and we've got to put this down because this is just going to destroy how our whole empire is built. But I think you see, even in the New Testament, seeds of the demise of slavery there. In the book of Philemon, right? Onesimus was Philemon's slave or indentured servant and he, he runs away. And Paul sends him back to Philemon and says, hey, you know, this guy ran away and I know he's your slave, but, you know, if he owes you anything, if he took it, put it on my account. Ah, By the way, Philemon, you owe me your spiritual life, so, hey, and if there's anything else that happens, you know, put it on my tab. And by the way, he's a brother and treat him like one. And so to me, in that, it's like Paul saying, you know, this, this institution, it's not what God's design is for. But God... I think, and I wish there was a quicker pace of movement here, but he recognizes that sometimes change takes time. And he worked slowly. And he makes things better by the law of the Old Testament, but it's not immediately perfect. There's this thing called progressive revelation where God works over time to correct changes. Same with polygamy and some of those kind of things. Those are not practices that God designed from the beginning. That's not what he wants, but that's existing in the culture, and so he regulates it, but it's interesting. If you look at all those polygamous relationships in the Old Testament, none of them went really well. It's not because it's there, and and sometimes, oh, well, that's in the Bible. It's like, yeah, the Bible has all sorts of examples of people that do terrible stuff. It's not a recommendation of doing that stuff. Oh yeah, Jephthah, he sacrificed his daughter. That's stupid. I can't believe the Bible says do that. It's not saying it does that. It's saying that's really stupid what he did. And he probably should have violated his vow, not sacrificed his daughter, if he actually did. And there's debate about whether that's what happened to Eric at all. But the reality is, just because something is in the Bible is not something the Bible recommends. These things are written as examples to us, right? And they're good examples and they're bad examples. 
And then he's like, okay, don't do this. Because this is going to lead to destruction in your life. So recognize that God regulates practices that were already in existence in a culture that weren't his ideal. But that was just what was there. And God begins to work in that culture to correct those changes. But those are principles that he works out over time. So again, look for the principle behind the command. Um, Paul does this. There's a text in the Old Testament law that says, don't muzzle an ox while it's treading the grain. And I look at that and think, All right, got no oxes, got no muzzles, got no grain for them to tread, but you know, what's the point that Paul makes there? In essence, and this is benefits me, he's like, pay your pastors. <laughs> Shameless point. But the point is that workers are deserving of wages. So treat them well. And so he's going to the principle behind the actual application of that principle in that context. And so Paul says, you know, God wasn't that concerned about oxes. Yeah, he's concerned about them. But his main point was the principle that he's trying to get across there. I don't have time to go into every one of these challenging passages in the Old Testament that are often on memes that make Christianity look ridiculous. Um, I think one of the better books in dealing with this is called Is God a Moral Monster by Paul Copen. And that comes from Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion, where he talks about God being the most nasty, horrible person that you've ever encountered. And uh, when I read scripture, it says God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And the New Testament says that Jesus is the exact representation of God. And so to me, that's the picture of our God I go to. And again, this leads me to a point of, am I approaching scripture with an attitude of submission and reverence and loving of God, understanding, okay, this is the character of God. And when I come up against one of these passages, it's not chucking my Bible out the window. It's, I'm, but Lord, help me to understand this. I don't really understand this. And it may be something cultural. It may be something that I just can't put together right now. And to recognize that that may take some time. You know, when we talk about in Psalm 1 that he's to meditate on, this means chewing on this stuff over and over again. And as I said last week, you know, God doesn't put everything on the bottom shelf. We want it to be really easy. We want, ah, I read this, I got to understand it right away. And he's like, no, no, no. Jesus told a lot of parables. In the Old Testament, it talks about the prophets speaking in riddles. What are riddles? Do you understand a riddle right away? No, it's, it's like, what in the world? What's, what's that guy saying? You ever encountered that in Scripture? You come up saying, what in the world? It's the saying. Don't let that be something that cause you to throw your Bible out the window because I think the weirder, stranger stuff is stuff that we really need to dig into and say, Lord, what, what are you saying here? How do I put this together with who I know you to be because I know Jesus? And so to process through that, and there's tons of resources out there. So when you come across these super seemingly aggressive memes that make God seem like a monster immoral and horrible don't just yeah that's true no these people are just totally taking a verse out of context out of culture and ask acting as if we've got to apply that today and that's my third point so consider the context consider the culture and consider the covenants this is all old testament right testament means covenant right Covenant is an agreement of how a relationship works. In the Old Testament, there was something called a suzerainty covenant where you had a, 
an overlord, and then you had a subject that was, and there was kind of a normal legal form that they would fill out in terms of detailing, okay, this is what the, the Lord did for these people, and these are the responsibilities then of the people towards the Lord and how they make this relationship work. And at the end, usually then, okay, if things go well, these are going to be the blessings. If things don't go well, these are going to be the problems that arise in this relationship. And you see, basically, the Torah organized in that fashion. And you see, okay, this is what God has done. He's rescued you out of Egypt, right? And for this time, this is how he wants us to relate to one another. And if you do it, this is what's going to be the result. You're going to be blessed. There's going to be prosperity in your land. And if you don't, there's going to be curses. And you see that those curses go up and up and up the more disobedience comes. And as you look at Scripture, you recognize, okay, that was for a period of time, right? This is the Old Covenant. But in the big picture of Scripture where you have God creating all things, and he creates things, why? to be in intimate relationship with us. That's the garden. That's the picture of God dwelling with his people. That's what he wants for us, right? But then because of spiritual fall outside of that world and then the fall of us in that world, that's broken, right? And then God begins to initiate this plan of redemption. And he calls this guy from Ur of the Chaldees and he says, man, through you I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. And then we realize as we get to Israel that God sets up this picture of how we relate to God through the sacrifices. And then you go through and you're like, oh, is this going to be the way? And then each of the leaders falls flat on their face. And even Moses, the guy that brings the law, can't go into the promised land. The law doesn't bring us into the promises of God. And ultimately this points towards there's nobody that's doing this well enough we've all broken god's law we never measure up and then what then the messiah comes the one that's going to fulfill this and even in the old testament there was a planned obsolescence that we see in jeremiah 31 and ezekiel 36 it talks about a new covenant coming where god writes his law in our hearts and he gives his spirit to us so that we can actually live this stuff out because the principles they were living out were not wrong it's they just didn't have the ability to live them out and if you look at the Old Testament, you see failure after failure after failure after failure. And you're wondering, what in the world? Maybe God was trying to teach us that on our own, in our own strength, even if we have the right principles, we can't live this out. We need someone, A, to pay for our rebellion and our sin, and the consequence of that is death, and that is Jesus Christ, and that's what he did on the cross. But also then, we need the ability to be able to live out those principles in life, and that's the new covenant the Spirit poured out upon us, as Joel says, on men and women, young and old. That's what we need. The law written in our hearts and the Spirit empowering us to live in a changed way. In Luke 22.20, Jesus says, this cup is poured out for you. The new covenant in my blood. Our new way of relating to God is through not the sacrificial system and all the animals that are there, but that all pointed to Jesus Christ. The New Testament says these things were a shadow of the things to come. And that shadow's reality is Christ. And so as you look at the New Testament, you recognize that, you know what? These laws in the Old Testament, as I'm reading, they don't apply to me. I don't have to follow these laws, right? Turn to the book of Hebrews. I'm just going to read a few verses here before we close. This is from chapter 7. It's talking about this new priestly system in the order of Melchizedek. 
Verse 11 says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is a necessary change in the law as well. So the author is saying basically, Jesus is this new priest in the order of Melchizedek, not the Old Testament, Old Covenant law where the priests were from Aaron's descent. And he says this, For on the one hand, the former commandment is set aside, this is verse 18 of chapter 7, is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. That's pretty strong words to talk about the Old Testament law in that way. And turn to chapter 8. Start in verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declared the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. And then over in chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. In another part in Hebrews it says the Old Testament law is obsolete. So as we read that, we recognize that this section of law that we encounter as we go through our Bible reading in a year is not about are needing to apply it directly in our lives. This was for the Israelites at this stage of their cultural walk, and it was not the perfect law. And now we've come to the New Testament where what Jesus says is, right, what's the principle behind all of these laws? Love God, Matthew 22, right? Love God what? with all you've got, and love your neighbor as yourself. For all the law and the prophets, they hang on this. So Jesus is giving us, this is what I'm calling you to do as my children now. All of these Old Testament regulations and laws don't apply. That's obsolete. It's past. It's done. Okay, there's principles there that probably you still need to apply in your life, but those laws are not binding on you. You know, if you eat a cheeseburger, not a bad deal. You have some shrimp and grits, good, really good. God's fine with that. He's not going to exclude you. You're not unclean because of that. But we live same as the Israelites did, based on the grace of God that rescued them out of slavery, he's rescued us out of slavery. And it may have not been literal bondage, but it was bondage to ourself and to our sin. He's rescued us from that. He's given us new life. And now he says, okay, now this is the way I want you to relate to me, to love me with all you got, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says the same thing. All the law hangs on loving your neighbor as yourself. And so as we look 
these laws to go through and also ask ourselves the question, how is this showing a love either for God or a love for neighbor? And I think another cool way to look at that is how does this shadow that I see in the Old Testament laws, how does that picture Christ? And you look at all the sacrificial system and the various offerings and stuff like that, it's like, okay, maybe this is giving me some insight into what the sacrifice of Jesus Christ means. Yes, it pays for my sin. It's a guilt offering, but also it's a fellowship offering that now it allows me to fellowship with God and be in God's presence and enjoy Him. So all those things as we read the Old Testament, 2 Corinthians 1, 20, I think all the promises of God are yes in Christ, right? That I'm looking at the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus Christ. How do I see Jesus pictured here? And if you think I'm off base, what do you think Jesus did on the road to Emmaus with those guys? <laughs> he went back the Old Testament, to the Law and the Prophets, and explained all things concerning himself in there. Yeah, this is what all of that meant. These were all the types or the pictures that have found their fulfillment in me. This is what it is looking forward. So again, consider the context. Consider the culture, and then consider the covenant as you read the law. And again, to me, that will help us get to that place where maybe we're not going to jump up with enthusiasm when we reach Deuteronomy 21, but at least we'll say, okay, this is a framework that I as a believer can read this stuff through. Give me understanding. Help me to see what you are choosing to reveal to me through these laws and principles that no longer directly apply to my life. And again, when you encounter something that seems really weird or even seems immoral, push into that a little bit. You know, don't just say, ah, this whole stuff is nonsense. But think through. And if you don't have an answer, ask somebody. There's a whole ton of people that have studied this stuff for their livelihood, for their lives, and their answers to a lot of these challenging passages. So just don't say, oh, this kind of throws a monkey wrench in on my whole Christianity. I guess I got to give it up. But no. And I'm afraid so many, we hear, you know, students go off to college and they lose, you know, their faith because they get in that freshman, you know, Bible is literature class and all this stuff comes up all of a sudden. They're just like, oh, I didn't. Yeah, well, maybe because as a church we have not prepared people for what they're going to encounter and then we have not encouraged them when they face those kind of things to push into it, to look for answers to those questions and to seek them out. So, don't chuck your Bible. It's really good. I've studied it for my whole life and there's treasures in here and there's truths in here and there's wisdom here that is really significant for our lives. And again, it's wisdom that may not at first be super obvious to us, but if we dig a little bit and say, okay, Lord, what are you really trying to communicate? I know I'm not in this culture. I know this doesn't directly apply to my life, but how, Lord, are you showing yourself here? And how are you showing a principle here of how I'm to love those around me well and to love you well? So, all right, hopefully that'll keep you on your Bible reading plan and uh, keep you in the Word. Let's pray. Father, we want to be at that point where we do delight ourselves in your Word, even the challenging parts of it. So, Lord, just give us eyes to see, illumine our minds when we come across stuff that it's just really challenging for us to understand. Help us, Lord, to be willing to put in the work to think about those things and to, to study them and to ponder them, Lord, not just writing you off because somehow this is strange sounding. Lord, we love you 
and we see you most clearly in Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate revelation of the living word. But Lord, thank you so much for your written word. Help us to study it and help us to accurately and correctly interpret it. Give us your wisdom. Guide us as a community of believers as we ponder this stuff. Lord, give us grace and gentleness with one another as we wrestle with some of the harder things in here. But Lord, help us to be moved to love you and to love other people as we open your written word. And it's in Jesus' precious and powerful name I pray. Amen. Amen.